0: My name's Paul, I'm one of the pastors here, thrilled to be with you here this morning again, continuing, like Jeremy said, our series in 1 uh, Samuel, uh, the We Want a King series. So I've got a question, real easy question before we start, uh, and, the, and the question is this, what in your life right now uh, doesn't make sense? Real easy softball for Sunday morning, uh, What in your life right now is just really complicated? Where do you feel stuck? What are the the circumstances or the situations or the problems or the issues, the things that just don't add up? What kinds of questions do you have about different relationships or maybe uncertainties or questions about your career or your education path that you're on or just the general direction of your life. Maybe you got questions for God or even questions about God. Where do you just feel stuck? Like things just aren't going the way that you thought that they would go at this point in your life. I uh, was talking to my friend Jeremy who's the, he was on the screen. He's one of our pastors here and he made the statement. He said, I just feel like in every category of my life, I'm constantly confronted with questions and issues and problems to solve that I've never had to experience before and I've never been trained in. I said, it kind of feels like you have to take a test for a class that you've never been to um, or a class that you've never had. That was my case. I always took a test for a class I never went to, but that's my fault because I never went to class. (laughs) We all have these seasons in life where things just They just don't make sense. They just, we're not really sure what to do. Um, Jen Josbeck is our director of communications here uh, at the church, and she's been bringing this verse that God has given her in this season. uh, Out of 2 Chronicles 20, it says this, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And I'm like, why are you always telling me this verse? We don't know what to do. Is that at me or what? But no, the point of the verse is this, but our eyes are on you. And sometimes um, in our seasons of life where when we feel stuck or we are, where we don't know what to do, it's just a matter of kind of putting one foot in front of the other. And the reason I'm bringing all this up is when we're going to kind of zoom in on David, a season of David's life this morning, um, where it's just that for him, Uh it's not necessarily a season of thriving. It's not necessarily a season of living the dream for David. He's literally just trying to stay alive. And you'd think that after the anointing that's on his life, you'd think after a major victory like we saw last week uh, when Tyler took us through the, the story of his victory over Goliath, that things would really start to be trending upwards. But we're going to see in the chapters that we're going to cover this, this morning It's actually getting more and more difficult. David's life is getting more and more complicated. But the important thing that we're going to see this morning is that even in the midst of what David has to go through, even in the midst of all these things that just don't make sense, God is still working. So we got a big job this morning, or I have a big job. Uh, we're going to try to get through 1 Samuel chapter 18 through 24, uh, and, I'm, and I'm really going to try to just do like a flyover of those. Typically, the way that we teach through the Bible here, as uh, we take a particular passage or chapter of Scripture, and we try to go verse by verse, that's, that's normally kind of what we do. We just have too much to get through this morning, so I won't be able to do that exactly. And then after we get through those six chapters, I actually want to land on a psalm, so David was a like, singer-songwriter, and he would oftentimes write these songs or these psalms to describe his perspective, to describe the way that he was Feeling, to describe his thoughts about God, to describe where his heart was when these different things were going to go on, when these different things were happening in his life. So we're going to kind of, in essence, read his journal after we hear about the things that he has gone through, and then we're going to see from that how we should set our hearts and set our minds when we are in these seasons of uncertainty and these seasons where things just aren't going the way that we were hoping that they would go. Let me pray and just ask God to help us with all this. Father, we love you. And God, we have already sung and confessed your great love over us. And God, we've confessed uh, your faithfulness and the firm foundation that we have in you. And so, God, we we don't just sing those songs to fill time. Um, They're setting the table. They're setting the table for us this morning. As we do wrestle with the parts of our lives, God, that... um, just feel really complicated, the parts that we don't have answers to, the, the things um, that we're up against, God, that we're just not sure what to do. And God, I pray that by your Spirit and through your Word that our eyes would be set on you this morning. And in the places and in the moments and in the times, God, where our gaze has just been way more focused on our, on our issues and our problems and our circumstances, God, would you fix our eyes and God, just retune our hearts, recalibrate our minds to you. And God, we, we just can't do this on our own. And um, God, this is not just something where we just need a, a deal of willpower. We need your Spirit. the so Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you do what only you can do, God? Would you, uh, would you lift our heads? Would you set our gaze on you? Would you bring the Scripture alive? Would you speak right to us? God, bring encouragement where it's needed, I pray. God, bring comfort where it's needed. God, bring conviction where it's needed. And God, by your kindness, lead us to repentance this morning. God, let us know that you're for us and not against us this morning. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So 1 Samuel chapter 18, if you have a Bible, you could just open there. And like I said, we're going to be kind of working through till chapter 24. Um, And then some of these places I'll stop and read through some of the scriptures. Some of them I'll just kind of describe what's happening in that chapter. Uh, Here's something for you. You can always read the Bible on your own. You can do that whenever you want. Uh, So if there's something that I don't get to um, you can you can read it. You can even read it today if you wanted to. You don't have to wait for another moment. You could you can read it today. Uh, so I'm going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and basically kind of work through what's happening here. So in the first First Samuel chapter 18, um, important things to note: David starts a really significant relationship with Saul's son Jonathan. They become like best friends. It actually ends up saving David's life. And it's really important because Saul is becoming increasingly more jealous of David. So David has been going out. This is after Goliath. He's been having military victory after military victory. And so much so, they actually write a top 40 hit song about him. It's number one on iTunes and Spotify. And it goes like this. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Everybody loves This song. It is a chart topper, except for Saul. The scripture says that this just sets him off. It makes him furious, actually. And in fact, it says the scripture says it actually makes Saul really suspicious of David. And in fact, in this chapter, Saul tries to kill David by throwing a spear at him from across the room. So, Saul can't really even stand to have David in his presence anymore. It's, it's actually, there's this huge kind of conflict because David is a musician and he's a, able to play music that helps to calm Saul down, but at the same time, Saul can't handle even being around David, so he's just constantly conflicted by him. And so he's like, you know what, he just sends him out and he said, I'm going to send him out to continue to do battle. Maybe he'll just get killed while he's out there and I won't have to worry about David anymore. But David goes into battle and he's more and more successful because the scripture says the Lord is with David. And so Saul, he's jealous of him, is envious of him, he's angry about him, he's scared of him, he's suspicious of him. And what you're going to start to see in Saul in these next few chapters is that all of those things, which make for a very, very bad leader, they make him start to unravel and become even more and more irrational. And so Saul has a plan. He's like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to trap or I'm going to ensnare David. And then they use my daughter, Michael, to do it. Look at verse 20. Now, Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David. There's, there's all kinds of things in this narrative that you could really start to pull apart. And it's that Saul has a hatred towards David, but Jonathan and Michael, who are Saul's son and daughter, have a love, a growing love for David. And Michael's in love with David. And they tell Saul and Saul's like, okay, that's great news here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give her to him, he thought, so that she might be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines might be against him. The thing about Michael, Saul's daughter, is that she worshiped idols. And so Saul's thinking is, if David marries Michael, he'll start to worship idols the way that Michael does, and then the favor of the Lord will no longer be on him, because now he'll be worshiping these idols, and he won't be worshiping Yahweh. And then that will end up ending in a military uh, failure or loss for David. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. So Saul orders his attendants, verse 22, speak to David privately, saying, look, the king likes you and his attendants all love you. Now you can become his son-in-law. And they said this to David. David said, "Do you think it's a small matter to become this king's son-in-law?" So David's like, "I know who I am. I know where I come from. I come. I'm, I'm a small town guy. I'm a poor man. I'm nobody. There's no way that I could be the king's son-in-law." So the servants bring that back to Saul, and Saul says, "Great, he's in." Say to David, the king wants no other price. So there was a bride price in this culture. So if a man were to offer you his daughter for marriage, you would have to pay that man for his daughter. But listen to this price. Bring me a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on my enemies. Am I the only one who thinks the Bible's got some weird stuff in it? Because that's, <laughs> that's, that's weird. That's weird. And Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the time, allowed, so David doesn't waste any time. What the scripture says, David took his men with him and went, in, went out and killed two hundred Philistines and brought back their foreskins. Do you ever use your imagination when you read the Bible? or You're like trying to envision this scene. Okay, we're gonna move on. That's weird. Um, but the, yeah, okay. They count out the full number to the king. It's the whole thing is so weird. So, so then, da, so then Saul gives Michael to marriage. Now, Saul does this for a couple different reasons. One, he thinks that he's going to trap David because Michael worships idols, and he's like, okay, I'm going to get him into idol worship. Two, I mean, trying to kill a hundred Philistines uh, means that there's a good chance that David could get killed trying to do that. Uh, And then also, like, I know the foreskin thing is weird, but it's also, like, that could make him unclean. So that's Saul's, like, irrational thinking process between this wild thing that he sends David after. But David does everything that's requirement. In fact, he goes above and beyond. And so now the scripture says in 18, Saul's actually more afraid of David than he was before. Chapter 19. So Saul's still trying to kill David. David. Um, but, but Jonathan kind of talks Saul. So again, you're seeing the son of Saul try to help David. Now you're going to see the daughter of Saul, who is David's wife, also help uh, David. Verse 9 in chapter 19 an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he's sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. David's playing the lyre, and Saul tried to pin him to the wall with the spear. This is the second time. He's had a spear thrown on him by Saul. But David's kind of like Barry Sanders. He gets out of there. He can escape. So Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him and said, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and put some goat's hair at the head. And when Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, he's ill. So have you ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Where you got the, it's kind of one of those moments right there. And so Saul is still bent on killing David and the, and the way that you have to see the story told is, is very important, because he's getting help from Jonathan, he's getting help from Michael, and the way that it's written by the narrator is to, to make us see that David is not trying to usurp the authority of Saul. He's not just trying to kind of take the throne from from Saul. So now David flees. He's on the run. He goes to a place called Rama and there he meets up with the prophet Samuel and they travel to a place called Naoth, which uh, scholars say is like a kind of like a religious uh, enclave or, or compound. And so Saul finds out that he's fled and he's gone to this place Naoth. And so Saul sends out his men to go get David. And then it's something very odd happens while the men go there to capture David or to kill David. They're intercepted, the scripture says, by the Spirit of God. And the men kind of get caught up in this, like, kind of state of delirium. There's like kind of like a, they they become like kind of crazy. The scripture says prophecy, but it's written in that way so they they're just kind of like shouting, they're kind of caught up. They're they're not, they're controlled by the spirit of God. So Saul sends another group. Same thing happens to them. Finally what happens is Saul's like, "You know what? I am just going to go on my own. If I want something done, I need to do it myself." So Saul goes to get David Same thing happens to him, except this time Saul gets so overtaken that he actually takes his clothes off and he's starting to to prophesy. He's like delirious in this fate and he's laying in the road naked. And the thing that's kind of important to know about chapter 19 is it ends with this verse. Um, it, It ends with the people say, is Saul also among the prophets? And that's in there because if you remember in chapter 10, when Saul's introduced who Saul's kind of like a nobody from nowhere and he gets brought in, the people say that, is Saul also among the prophets? They say it in kind of like a way of like wonder or praise, like look what God's doing, look what God is raising up. But now we're starting to see that Saul's become a parody of what he was. Now Saul's a joke because here he is blabbering and acting crazy and lying naked in the road. And they're like, oh, this guy also among the prophets? Chapter 20. So now um, David's pretty sure that Saul's crazy, and he's definitely sure that he wants to kill him. Jonathan intercedes once again, and they have this really beautiful, powerful moment at the end of chapter 20. You should read through it. Their friendship is something that's just so special and unique in the scriptures And they weep, and they embrace, and um, he says in verse 42, Go in peace, for we swarm friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. The Lord is witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then they go their separate way. And what you're starting to see is that the pride and the insecurity and the fear of Saul is not only tearing the kingdom from him. If you remember when he tore the garment of Samuel and said, and Samuel said, that's exactly what's happening to your kingdom. It's being torn away from you. It's now starting to tear the kingdom. It's tearing Saul apart. He's becoming more and more irrational, more and more unstable. He's unraveling. And now it's starting to tear relationships of his family and people closest to him, and it's tearing now people apart. It's a whole other message. It's a whole other study in what pride and insecurity and envy and jealousy and fear does to a leader and in leadership. And you're starting to see it just like all now just be torn apart. Verse 21, David's now on the run. He runs about three miles to a place called Nob. There's a priest there named Ahimelech um, who helps David. And he helps David because David had to flee with his guys and he's got no food and he's got no weapons. And so he shows up and he said, do you have anything to eat? And the priest says, all we have is the show bread or this bread of presence, which was bread that was baked, especially just for the priest. They would kind of lay that out. Nobody else was supposed to eat that, but uh, it had been kind of like after an allotted time. And so Ahimelech offers that to David. David's like, okay, do you have any weapons here? And he's like, well, we actually have Goliath's sword. Uh, so after Goliath was defeated, they took, Ahimelech took his sword and held onto it. And so David's like, that's great. There's no other weapon like that. I'll t- take that. Now, the important thing to notice in this chapter is that there is a character there, uh, and if this was a movie, this would be kind of like an ominous scene that would like just kind of like cut to this character in the corner. And his name, I call him Doug. It's D-O-E-G. I don't know how to pronounce that, so I'm just going to call him Doug. He's Doug the Edomite. Um, and it says, verse 7, chapter 21, now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doug the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. So he's not a Hebrew, um, and he was either uh, captured in one of the battles, and now he's just been enlisted by Saul, or he defected from his people, and now he Saul, he's the chief shepherd, which means he kind of took care of all of Saul's animals. But he's there, and he sees this whole scene Play out. He sees that Ahimelech has now helped David, who is Saul's sworn enemy. So that's important for you to know. So from there, there's another kind of odd scene. David leaves and he goes uh, towards Gath, and there in Gath is Achish. Uh, And Achish has heard the song. He knows the song. Saul's killed his thousands. David kills his 10,000. So when David approaches, he's like, oh, I know exactly who this guy is. And David thinks, all right, this is not safe for me to be here. Uh, And so David does what any brave warrior would do uh, when he's confronted with a, a potential enemy who might come at him. He starts to act insane, and the Bible says he starts to like drool all over himself and he starts like blabbering he's like bleh, 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 bleh. That's how you act if you ever want to act insane. He starts to do that, and he's drooling all over himself, and he's just acting like a wild man. And I, I love uh, how Achish, the Philistine king, responds to watching David do all this. Um, it, it makes me, uh, it reminds me of like when I bring my friends over uh, to the house. My wife says the same thing. Verse 14, he says, look at this man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you must have to bring this fellow here to carry on like in front of me? Does this guy have to come in my house? Like, do we not have enough craziness around here? You have to bring this guy in here? So David acts insane, and that's how he escapes. And he escapes, chapter 22, to a cave of Adullam. And look at the first two verses here. David left Gath Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. Now, if we were in this story, this would be the moment where we would want, like, SEAL Team 6 to show up. Like, the Avengers should roll in at this moment, like, right now. You've been chased by Saul. He's trying to kill you. You just had to act like a maniac so you could escape this other king. You you had to scramble for weapons. You had to scramble for bread. You had to scramble for supplies. And now all of a sudden you're hiding again in in a cave. And the scripture says he's got his aging parents, his elderly parents who need help and about 400 people who are all in debt discontent with their life on the ragged edge of society that's his group saul's out there with a massive army trying to hunt him down trying to kill him david's got about 400 people who are all on like hanging on by like the thread of a thread that's what he's got but yet god is still working This is the point of what we are supposed to see. It actually pushes us forward to Jesus for a moment. If you look in... The Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter one, it talks about the kinds of people that Jesus always had around him. If you're not familiar with Jesus' followers, he picked not all stars, he picked like the most ragtag group of people that you could find in society at that time, and that's what he gathered around him permanently. And then everywhere he went, he had these kinds of people around him. In Mark chapter one, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and all the demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases, and he drove out many demons, but he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Wherever you see Jesus, these are the kind of people who gravitate towards him. These are the kind of people who are always around Jesus, the most broken, the most hurting. It's not like he said, give me all the super spiritual people. The demon-possessed people are the people who are around him, but they all have one thing in common. They're desperate, for Jesus. They're desperate for Jesus. The Apostle Paul kind of picks up on this theme because he knows what Jesus has said about himself. Listen, I didn't come for those who were well. They don't need a physician. I came for the sick. I came came for those who need saving. That's why those are the people who are always around me. The Apostle Paul kind of picks up on the scene when he's talking about us, the church, in 2 Corinthians. He said, chapter 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. He's not talking about something that's super sturdy or even something that's like necessarily beautiful or ornate. He's talking about something very common very fragile, very utilitarian. We we carry this treasure in jars of clay, that's us, to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not for us, from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed. We're perplexed but not in despair. We're persecuted but not abandoned. We're struck down but not destroyed. And we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also revealed in our body. He's like, you're just simple pieces of pottery, but you hold in you the very life of Jesus. And so all of the suffering, all of the questioning, all of the confusion, all of the complexity, all of the thousand little deaths that you carry on in your life are to show the surpassing life and power of Jesus Christ. Simple pottery with an incredible treasure inside. Chapter 22 actually kind of ends in a really brutal way. Again, Saul is completely irrational at this point. I told you to hold on to and remember Doug the Edomite because Saul gets word that Ahimelech helped David. David. And Saul has this kind of consistent theme with people who are helping David. Like, you're all conspiring against me. Jonathan, Michael, now Ahimelech, you're all conspiring against me. This is what insecure, fearful people do. You're all against me. And Doug, the Enamite, he steps forward with this information that David was helped by Ahimelech. And so Saul looks to his soldiers and he's like, go and kill all the priests in Nob. And the soldiers are like, you've asked us to do a lot of crazy things and we've done them, but we are not doing that. And so Doug, the Edomite, he steps up and he's like, I'll do it. And he kills 85 priests. And then he goes in and the scripture says, and then he slaughters the women and the children and the animals and Nob as well. And now you've got Saul, this farmer's son who became a king, is now a murdering tyrant. It's a really dark day for Saul. Chapter 23, we're not going to go into that much. It's a, it's a great little kind of breakout section where God says to David, hey, there's a, some Philistines encamped over there. I want you to go and fight them. You're going to have victory. And he goes and he does. And, and what you're starting to see is that David has been anointed to something greater But ever since that moment, it's like he's been on the run. Nothing about David's circumstances seem to be aligned with what God has spoken over him. God says one thing, but it's like it's not really coming forward. It's not really happening. And it's all meant to show us that no matter what is happening in your life, the plans and the purposes of God are not thwarted. Even though the place in your life where you are right now, it doesn't look like there's something divine or even beautiful. It doesn't look like God is working. It doesn't mean that he's not working. Just because it looks like there isn't hope or there isn't a future, it doesn't mean that there isn't one. Just because you look at your life and you maybe sometimes you feel like David before Achish and you're like, am I just like losing my mind here? It doesn't mean that God is not working. So it takes us forward to chapter 24. I just want to really tell you the story real quick from chapter 24, because next week we're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive specifically on chapter 24. But then I want to get and end our time together with Psalm 57. Um, but but here's what happens in chapter 24. Uh, David is in a cave again. David finds himself in a lot of caves. And uh, he and the, like, his army, they're inside the cave, and Saul just happens to come by with his army. And Saul goes into the cave. The scripture says to relieve himself. He's got to use the bathroom. And while he's in there, all of David's guys are like, David, hello. God has provided for you, your enemy, in literally the most vulnerable position possible. This is it. This is clearly from God. Go and take what's yours. Go and finally become the king that you were meant to be, that you're anointed to be, that was promised to you. Saul has been brutal towards you. He's thrown spears at you multiple times. He's tried to kill you. He, he's, he's fractured and severed your relationship with your best friend and with your with your wife, and he's chased you all over the wilderness. Look what God has provided. And so David sneaks up on Saul. We're gonna get into this more next week. He sneaks up on Saul and he's got his sword out and he doesn't kill him, but he cuts a piece of Saul's cloak, cuts a piece of his clothes off, and he takes it. And what's so interesting about this moment is that David immediately feels remorse and regret over what he did. And he turns back and he looks at his guys and he said, That is the Lord's anointed that's God's man. Who am I to do something against God? David, it's right there. It's right there for him to take it. But it's not God's way. You cannot experience God's will when you don't do things God's way. And we're going to talk about that a lot more. But I want to camp in our last few minutes together here. I just want to end with Psalm chapter 57. This is a song that David writes, scholars say, sometime between the events of chapter 22 and chapter 24. And in my Bible, it says that it's set to the tune of Do Not Destroy, which sounds like a Metallica song to me. So I kind of think of it that way. But he writes this song to give us like an insight into what he's thinking when all of this stuff that I just laid out for you is happening in his life. So Psalm chapter 57, I'm actually going to read this from the uh, the ESV. So it's a little different version than I normally use, but it says this, verse one, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. We're going to see a few principles from this psalm as we leave this morning that we can hold on to and the first principle is this God's presence is the place of my protection God's presence is the place of my protection David physically geographically is in a cave but in verse 1 he says I am taking refuge I'm not hiding in a cave I'm hiding in the shadow of the wings of God. I'm hiding in the presence of God. When disaster is happening in your life, when things are falling apart, when it doesn't make sense, he's encouraging us to hide ourselves in the presence of God. I think the reason you see David be preserved by God the way that he does is because David trusted in and he really longed for, really desired the presence of God. David's not going to get it all right. We're going to see him do some really awful things. But he gets this right. He really longed for the presence of God. He's an, He's been anointed, but it doesn't look like he's ever going to get the opportunity. In fact, it looks like he's going to get killed before he even gets the opportunity to be king. But he says, Lord, I'm hidden in you, and I know that outside of you, no outside of your authority nobody can touch me and we need to learn like David in the to desire the presence of God in the darkest times of our life because our tendency our tendency and the cultural push is that in the, the times of trouble not to seek the presence of God but to seek some kind of distraction we want to disassociate from real life as much as we can we try to numb it we try to numb it with with food or drink or experience or person or relationship or money or something whatever we just try to disassociate from our time of trouble and culture says you can that's what you're supposed to do but it's all a trap if you if you've ever done that like I have you know not only did I not escape my trouble but now I've compounded it and added shame and embarrassment to it as well and what david is saying is no be present be present to the trouble but be in the presence of God. Seek the presence of God in prayer, by His Spirit, in His Word, with His people, in your times of trouble and pain. Verse 2, he says, I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. The second principle that we see is that God's purpose is the promise of my deliverance. God's purpose is the promise of my deliverance deliverance. David writes, God, you fulfill your purpose for me. In the King James Version, it says, you perform all things for me. Listen, David's on the run. He's hiding in a cave, and he's saying, you perform on my behalf, and you reward me. His circumstances haven't changed but he's trusting in the promise of God to bring his deliverance. The scripture says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. If God started something in your life, he will finish it. Alistair Beggs, a pastor who says faith is bringing our emotions and our circumstances under the jurisdiction, meaning under the authority and under the power of the promises of God. We experience faith. We are in the place of faith in our life when we bring all of our emotions, which are real. He's not saying don't have emotions. He's not saying don't have feelings. He's just saying when you bring the emotions, when you bring the feelings, and when you bring your very real circumstances, your very real problems, your very real issues, your very real questions, your very real struggles, and you bring them under the jurisdiction, under the authority, the power of the promises or the faithfulness, of God. The key to this principle here is that David says, God, you fulfill your purpose for me. Where we get caught up is that we've got all our purposes that we want God to fulfill for us. And where we get sideways with God is when he doesn't fulfill our purposes that we have for us. No, no, David is submitting to the purposes of God. He's like, I know that you are faithful to fulfill your purpose in my life. Like at this point, David still doesn't know how this is gonna end. He, He knows he's gonna be king, but he really has no idea how he's even gonna get out of the cave. And so he submits and he trusts God to do the thing in his life that he said he was going to do. Verse three, he will send from heaven and save me He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah, which means just think about that. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. The next thing we see is that God's performance is the assurance of my salvation. It's it's God's performance that's the assurance of your salvation. This is the gospel message. Not that you did the work to earn the favor of God. Not that you did the work to earn your salvation. Not that you can do the work to put yourself back together, God. Not that you can do the work to do your own saving, but that it was done on your behalf. I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to finish the psalm here. It says this, verse 4, My soul is in the midst of lions, I lie down amid fiery beasts and the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. What we're learning here is that God's greatness is the basis of my confidence. It's God's greatness that's the basis of my confidence. Scholars think the reason that David wrote this is because he's in this cave, and outside is Saul's army, and inside, deeper in the cave, there there was actually a like a pride of lions, so here you have David stuck, wedged in. That that might be how you feel this morning. You're like, I've got, like, an enemy on the outside, and if I try to go further in, there's ravenous beasts on the other side. That might be how you feel, hemmed in on every side. But listen what David says here, because he's not just like a naive optimist. He's confident in God's power to save. He says in verse 5, be exalted, O God, above the heaven. Let your glory be over all the earth. His perspective changes from what's around him to who's above him. He looks at his circumstances. He looks at what everything that's in front of him, and it feels unsafe, and it feels terrifying because, honestly, it is but he knows that God is the lifter of his head, the scripture says, and he can trust in him and he causes him to shift his perspective from what he sees around him. I got an enemy on the outside, ravenous beasts on the other side. Everywhere I look in my life, I'm just hemmed in. I, I have no solution to this. So I lift my head and I see the greatness and the goodness and the power of God that's greater than my circumstances. And that's just the story of how God shows up in the world, isn't it? Where we are stuck, we're gonna talk about this in communion in just a second. We're stuck with no way out, no rescue. But rescue comes from above. Listen to how David ends this song and then we're done. He says, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody, awake my glory, awake, O harp and lair. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. So be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all. All of the earth. Listen, I realize when we gather together, so many of us feel like we're stuck in a cave and there's an enemy on the outside and ravenous beasts on the other side. And what the scripture is calling us to this morning is to remember the steadfast love of God, to remember the faithfulness of God. And like David, to urge ourselves to praise and to look forward and to bring the testimony of God's goodness to our present circumstances. Connor reminds us of this all the time. Why do we sing together? We sing as a reminder of who God is and what he's done and what he's promised because we forget and we wander. We sing as a prayer request of what we want to see happen in our own lives and in the lives of those around us and in our world. And we sing as a testimony of truth. We sing for the faith of those around us. We sing for those who are without hope. Every week, we also take communion. And communion, to me, just feels like, and it is, it is a very tangible reminder of exactly what we're talking about. Because we were stuck and worse off than David ever was. Because we, the scripture says, had all sinned. And the payment or the wage or the penalty for that sin is death, eternal separation forever from God, a physical death and a real spiritual death. And we have no hope. We we could not fix that on our own. We could not save ourselves from that destiny. Someone from the outside, a savior, a perfect sinless savior, who knew no sin, but yet became sin on our behalf so that we might be covered in his righteousness, those who have come to him in faith and repentance. So it's a reminder of when there was no way, we were dead in our trespasses. Dead people cannot help themselves. But the author of life, the bringer of life, came and lived a perfect life, died a death that was due us and conquered forever Satan, sin, and the grave. And if your faith, if your trust is there and only in there, in Christ and in Christ's finished work alone, then take the bread, take the cup, take the body and the blood of Jesus and eat and drink and remember when there was no way, God made a way. Let's do that now.